Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. And welcome to The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey here with co-host Peter Bale. Peter, how are you? Hello, Bernard. I see you've gone, you've gone abroad, or at least to Wellington. Yes, I've, I've gone to rule the nation at the Cora Lounge in, yep. in Wellington, and I'm here with the Cora Lounge Society, making sure that everything runs smoothly. And are you hearing all, I mean, is it basically just an entire policy discussion on a Friday where... There, you know, is is Grant Rob- I suppose Grant, Grant Robertson doesn't have to go to the Koru Club on a Friday because he lives in Wellington. But you know, are they all there discussing GST on on or the lack of GST on fruit and veggies as they go uh, for the crudité? As they go for the crudité, no GST at all. It's all free in the Koru mm. uh, No, no. Actually, what happens is the politicians often leave on a Thursday night because that's when pa- uh, Parliament rises oh, yes. on a Thursday night, and you can often see them all gathered around the food, talking away, and, you know, you, you remember that just a couple of hours earlier they were shouting insults at each other, mm. but now they're, they're sharing anecdotes on If the, the member can't get, get it through his thick head, I thought, I, I, having met Willie Jackson just the other day, or we spent to a thing where he was, I actually quite enjoyed that little encounter, and I, but I didn't know, what, what was this thing about um, Trevor Mallard having punched somebody outside the that he mentioned was that Penahan yeah. or something? Uh, yeah, um, it, the, he there has been fisticuffs in Parliament. It's sort of ironic that he went on to become the Speaker of Parliament. Mm, very and and oh, was it uh, not when he was Speaker? No, it was before. Oh, that, that. would have been outrageous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he certainly uh, kept everyone on their toes in Parliament and managed to alienate the other side. I think Adrian Rurafe, the the new uh, Speaker, is still in. In honeymoon phase, yeah. and I'm not sure that uh, he's proved quite as controversial as Trevor Mallard, but no, he no, keeps it going. No, but Trevor was a yeah. I mean, I I knew him when I was a baby journalist there, but um, and he was a baby MP, I guess, in a sense, which is a fairly disgusting idea that you mind you, we've got a couple of baby MPs. If I think of David Seymour and um, and Simeon Brown, we've got you know children as um, as party leaders now. And Chris Hipkins always looks unnaturally young. He does. Interestingly, he came up uh, um, as a policy advisor and uh, political advisor to Trevor Mallard. Actually, he was. Oh, really? The, that was his first job in politics in Parliament. Bernard, I was also really pleased to see the. I mean, and I think it was it was in some of the coverage of it the wonderful Jacinda Ardern sort of voce thing about uh, Seymour being an arrogant little prick. Or an arrogant prick, not little. I don't think she would. I don't think she would body shame him. But no, uh, no. That, I was glad that that came up. Although the Willie Jackson thing about being thick was getting it through his thick head was somewhat more assertive. I'm not. Would, would the did the arrogant prick go into Hansard? I think it would do. I, I, mm. It's the sort of thing you could um, do a word search on, and I yeah, would look forward to doing that after the hoon. Yeah. Um, Hansard is quite fun to read sometimes. And in it fact, certainly a, is. There is a, a quite interesting little routine that uh, one of the business journalists does, Paul Macbeth, where he does uh, Hansard poetry. Mm. He goes through Hansard and looks for the most elegant uh, line from a politician. Do MPs in New Zealand get the, the, the privilege that the MPs in um, the UK and in in England have, which is to edit the Hansard? They get a... They get a sort of pre-publication version and they can yes. fix, fix up their rather yeah, yeah. clumsy words. That happens. But there isn't a lot of editing that goes on, in part because there's so many words. And you do wonder what's going to happen once they move to AI transcription mm. in Parliament. Mm. Well, we'll probably yeah. have AI MPs. I was listening to a podcast today which was about Tesla, which was using uh, an AI version of um, Elon Musk because he declined to be interviewed for it. <laughs> Good fun. Oh, and there's Catherine. So we're, you know, having having insulted Catherine last week as being an environmental extremist, effectively, here she is. No, we didn't. We're really <laughs> glad to have Catherine back. I'm no, I'm really glad to have Catherine back. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Peter. And um, the discussion about uh, degrowth has really sparked um, quite an interesting debate and um, taken it into the mainstream, at least on on uh, the Kaka, which is fantastic. Catherine, it's been a busy old week in climate. It's never a dull week in the climate these days. Um, firstly, on the policy front, where we had 
Labor uh, release its transport policy, which it put effectively roads first, uh, fixing up roads, building a few motorways and bridges, and relegated emissions reduction to um, not quite the bottom of the pack, but talked about a balanced approach, which was affordable. Um, what did you make of all of the news on, on transport and emissions this week? I mean, obviously that's pretty disappointing and seems like, you know, quite a short-term perspective. And it also brings into question, you know, how do we how are we going to meet our emissions reduction pledges under the Paris Agreement? Because that's another cost if you don't meet them. You know, you have to find a way to do that somewhere else. So, yeah. That's the missing link in a lot of these announcements there now. Uh, and at the announcement of the Cross Harbour um, Tunnels a couple of weeks ago, I asked this of uh, Chris Hipkins and David Parker, how does this project um, uh, reduce emissions in time to meet the Paris Agreement? And the, the other missing link is in any of these budgets and plans for the transport, um, there needs to be a big old liability in there for buying overseas carbon credits, which at the moment could be well over $20 billion. So you could spend $20 billion on two tunnels and then spend another $20 billion buying emissions credits because you haven't reduced emissions um, in, in that time. So we're seeing a lot of policy announcements come out, but I must say one of our main tasks will be to pick out the questions that haven't been answered and things that aren't in the statement. Well, that's our solutions journalism approach, Bernard. Yeah. So, Kashan, what did you think today, and well, possibly both of you, I mean, interesting decisions about uh, the government offering more money to farmers to just as for oddly in the same week that they've had a dairy farmers at least have had a bit of a setback with the dairy price, but you know, in trying to help them get to these emissions things, and also Kirsty Johnston, who I hadn't realised had gone to RNZ from stuff, doing quite an excellent piece about mm. the kind of subtle negotiations or the the sort of subtle caving in, if you like, to the farming lobby over uh, Hey Kanoa. Yeah, that piece was was great. It was, you know, absolutely fascinating to read and really gave some insight into how these things play out. Do, do you want to say what the conclusions were, Catherine, just a little bit? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot to tell us what was in it, just in case anybody didn't see it. Um, in terms of that reporting or in terms yeah. of the latest announcements? Both. Both. Uh, so the reporting really just showed the process of you know, the original attempts to come to an agreement around Haywaka Ekinoa and how those negotiations broke down. And then, and even now, they're still trying to kind of resuscitate them a little bit and, and try to get something out of it. But um, I, I think also this is really, you know, the, the industry is, uh, has had long practice at spinning these things out mm -hmm. over election cycles in the hope that, you know, the, the situation will change for them if, if there's a different outcome at the next yeah. election. So they've done what they've always done, which is... That's the passive-aggressive phenomenon in, in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And, and Catherine, look, this is also... I mean, Bernard has talked a lot about the push when push comes to shove with our international trade agreements that are really going to push people like the recalcitrant farmers towards, you know, having a responsibility for food miles and air, you know, and, and emissions and so on. Yeah, I think it was really interesting actually in the in the government announcement about, you know, what their plan is around the agricultural emissions is that right at the end they had this piece in there where they kind of said, Oh, oh well, you're gonna to have to change at some point anyway, because the market's starting to make demands like Nestle for reductions in scope three emissions. Um, which was another way of saying, you know, we're never gonna handle this. We'll think the market will do it mm, eventually. Mm. The problem with all of that is that our, our main markets aren't in Europe and it's not the likes of those companies. Our major market is in China and we are exporting, I don't know, something like 70% of our dairy exports are uh, milk powder in the form of milk powder and it goes in, as an ingredient into products that are manufactured in China. And that market in particular, I would I would say, is looking really fragile going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, And I think that's what's going to get particularly dairy farmers in the end. So you've got China in a big recession at the moment. You also have China increased their own ability to get milk and dairy, um, mm -hmm. buying cows, and, you know. Um, so they have their own inventory of dairy milk solids and so on now. So their demand is down at the moment, and I'm not sure that will be picking up anytime soon. And on top of that, you have this thing called precision fermentation going on mm -hmm. in the background, which is where there will be new... Um, 
I don't want to say synthetic milk because it's it's fermentation is not really a synthetic process. It's kind of in fact a natural process. But there's new businesses being set up in the likes of Dubai and and places like that to make the stuff. And when the price it's very very close now to the price of milk solids on the global market. When it dips beneath, then you know the first place it's going to get used is as as a bulk ingredient and. In, uh, manufacturing products so and we are so exposed to that so I think it's just a matter of time that the government you know everybody's just going to play it out until the market decides for them and that day I think is approaching. Yeah and when you look at um, what our competitors in Europe are having to put up with for example in in Holland at the moment a whole political party and political movements formed mm. a sort of a groundswell type party uh, because the European Union is looking to slash uh, dairy output there by as much as 20%. And so the actual dairy herd is being forced down. And in Ireland, actually, um, the uh, authorities there are looking to cut the number of cows by 200,000 just in the next year or so. Yeah, which I saw Elon Musk commented on as being ridiculous. But, you know, I mean, yeah. so he's, an ex- he's an expert on COVID and he's an expert in cows. Yeah. And submarines. Yeah. <laughs> it's ugly when the market does it for you. So as, as bad as that looks or as hard as that process looks in Europe at the moment, it's a lot uglier when the market does it to you and you don't mm. manage the process. And, and it also tends to um, uh, reinforce the things that people said quite a long time ago. Remember, Hewakan Ekenoa is, is upwards of four or five years old. And effectively today is the moment when something was supposed to happen. And all we ended up Mm. with was a delay in not just pricing emissions, but measuring them. And it's clear that the delay, deny, deflect uh, uh, effort has worked. And it's interesting to hear uh, Russell Norman, for example, former Green Party leader and now Greenpeace boss, saying that uh, when Ardern and Shaw announced He Waka Ekenoa and told us all how wonderful it was he said it was a sellout and it was just a delaying tactic. Mm-hmm. And today's announcement is the final confirmation that it was. And he describes the whole Hewaka Ikanoa thing as six years where the polluters have given a masterclass on how to block policies to cut mm-hmm. emissions. And he describes Labour, National, New First and the Greens as all complicit. So um, he's really kicking off today. And uh, Cashman, what about the Labour Labour transfer? I mean, sort of another day, another Labour policy that they'll probably, it would appear, never get to implement. What do we need to know about the Labour transport policy from an environmental point of view? It's roads, 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 isn't it? (laughs) You know, so from an environmental point of view, we obviously need to be transitioning into more active forms of transport. We need better transport links between, you know, major cities and smaller cities um we need more rail we need more we need more solutions in terms of freight um all of this is just status quo and actually we're all we're doing is figuring out how to fund the infrastructure we have or to build it out a, a little bit more we're not changing or transforming anything and and at the end of the day if you can't get the will and the funding together to transform anything then then we're you know we're in a bit of trouble down the road what was also interesting, I think, about this announcement was it and another another um, admission of defeat when it comes to finding a new way of funding the transport system. So at the moment, it's very dependent on fuel levies on diesel and petrol, and of course road user charges on diesel. And the problem for the entire funding system for transport is that it's dependent on everyone burning fuel. And if you stop burning fuel, as if you've got an electric car, there's no money to build new roads or maintain the existing ones. And the whole idea of the review through the government um, policy statement and a review not just of the public transport operating model but also of uh, the funding system was to come up with something new. But no, the solution has been to keep the existing system and then to just ramp up the fuel prices. So the irony is that in its attempts to be popular, the Labor government has had to resort to putting up a fuel tax and, of course, the opposition have jumped on that um, in the last couple of days and said, oh, we wouldn't do that. No, we wouldn't do that. I think what's really clear about, you know, all of this is that in New Zealand, it's really, really, really easy to sell an action to the, to the public. 
you know, because any type of action is going to have pain somewhere. And, you know, for, for every government ever that we've ever had, had, it's always been easier to just sell an inaction plan than it is to sell an action plan. And we buy it. That's a really interesting idea that we can sell in action. I love that idea. Don't worry. Don't worry your pretty heads about it. It'll never happen. And as we've seen, climate change, unlike in you know years gone by where you could conceivably say, oh, it's, it's not happened yet. We just have to, you know, it could be decades away. We can just give ourselves a bit of time. No, the rubber's hitting road this year. And as, or not, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps it shouldn't hit the road. But, but in terms of climate, we've got, Today, as we speak, um, massive fires in Tenerife that are out of control. We've got a cyclone barreling towards South uh, South California, Southern California, for the first time in nearly 100 years, and it looks like mm. it's going to dump three years of rain in a couple of hours on the parched deserts and, and dry lands of S- Southern California, causing massive flash, flash floods. And the mountains that have already been raised by fire, so they're going to be really, you know, in a fragile state. Yeah, and we we know, of course, though, that it never rains in California. <laughs> well, they're about to find out that it does an mm. awful lot. And mm. this is the thing we obviously know with enormous damage from uh, cyclones Gabrielle and Hail that it's very real. And what I found interesting this week um, was how the government approached the idea of climate adaptation and dealing with the outcomes of these disasters. Catherine, you've spent quite a bit of time this week looking at all the documents that came out with the announcement that the uh, government was going to consult on a climate adaptation act, not put it through before the election, and and try to keep it quite contained the advice about some of the quite big things that would have to happen. Can you tell us what you what you learned from these papers? Well, yeah, I've been doing a bit of a comparison between the expert working paper, uh, that the paper that came out from the expert working group on uh, managed retreat and the, and the paper that the government put out um, saying that they want to put it to a select committee. And really, as has been commented on in the media already, the timing of it was all a bit interesting because in that expert working paper is some really specific recommendations, some of which are highly controversial, and they effectively kind of buried that by putting out this discussion paper that just kind of outlaid a bunch of options and should we do this and should we do that and should we look at that and that, you know, and all, you know, without a lot of the time mentioning that the expert working group had already made very specific recommendations on that um, and outlining what they what they were. So, what were some of the um, most notable ones? Because some of them are quite quite heavy. Yeah. Well, what was interesting was the process and at which points there would be public consultation and at which point you would not be able to challenge a decision to retreat. You know, from a particular area. So there would be a certain point at which. Under the plans, the decision would be made and you would not be able to challenge it and you would not be able to litigate it in court mm-hmm. um, or anything. The decision would be taken and that would be it. So, And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's that's going to be contentious, you know. So that's, you know, I guess that's why they want to talk about it a bit more in a select committee. But, well, it's pretty, it's um, pretty remarkable if, if Jim Bolger gets accused of, absor- of um, right. being rude to people about um, managed retreat. Yeah, I, I mean, this is just a subject that, that gets people, you know, obviously very emotional and, and because it's it, it affects everything in your life if an order comes down from government that you have to abandon some land. And there's also the question of compensation. So, again, the, the working group document had some very specific recommendations on how that should be handled, and, and that included things like people's secondary homes or batches would not be compensated by government, only primary residences would. There would be a certain rate at which business premises could be compensated if they were forced to move, but it wouldn't be the entire mm-hmm. amount. So, you know, there were, like I said, very specific recommendations um, and in the in the government's call for discussion by the select committee, they've kind of worked around that by going, oh, well, there's some different options and let's discuss how much the government should be up for and how much taxpayers should pay for and, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, And the frustration is that this is an attempt to sort of get ahead of the curve, to have a sensible system for dealing with the events like we've seen in, in, in Hawke's Bay and in Gisborne, where suddenly hundreds of uh, owners of homes 
can't go back into their homes. They might get insurance, they might not. It's not clear exactly whether they'll be paid money by who. Is it the council? Is it the government? Is it a, is it a share between the council and the government? What if they just want to go back and live in it regardless? Um, this problem was solved after the Christchurch earthquake by essentially the government stepping in and saying, right, we will pay to buy back all of this red zone land. And that was right at the start, and it was an expensive process, um, but it, it solved that problem for Christchurch. Now, there were at other times when the government did not, under the previous national government, did not use its chunk of money to solve the problem. Well, they're also saying it becomes unaffordable, right? At a certain point of time, they can't actually keep jumping in with these ad hoc payouts because it becomes unaffordable, mm. unless you've planned in advance how you're going to fund things. And also, it's it's interesting that you know we're, we're at the point now where you can't really claim ignorance about climate change <laughs> when you buy a property. Uh, um, we've just been going through the process of that ourselves, and we spent a lot of time looking at the flood maps, not just the ones that are on the land information memorandum, but also the ones that are on the, there's various specialist websites which do overlays, which look at what a one in one hundred year event would look like, a one in two hundred year event. And they can also calibrate it for, let's say it's three degrees, four degrees, how many metres of climate uh, of rising sea levels. Mm. And then you have to ask the question, next time there's a flood or next time there's a, you know, some sort of wipeout, hang on a minute, um, why did you buy this property if you When knew? you know the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why should we compensate you? Isn't this the whole process of how the market works it out? But like the farmers and... The, um, the buyers in Europe saying, uh, no, we're not going to buy your stuff. The market decides. Well, if the market decides on, on climate adaptation, it's the insurers and the banks who should be getting involved in there. And also the moral hazard of someone buying a, a, a batch at Omaha, which is three, meet, three centimetres above the, the high tide mark, you know, why should a government and the taxpayers at large pay for someone uh, who should know better? There's an interesting point in the working group paper where they kind of said, you know, it shouldn't be the responsibility of this process to protect people's wealth. It is only to protect people's well-being um, and that they don't need to maintain socioeconomic differentials. And in fact, in some cases, they should be actively working to, to close those. More socialism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it depends. It's, it's not really socialism if you're expecting taxpayers to pay to maintain somebody's wealth, is it? I mean, that's the that that it's that is socialism. Refusing to do so is the opposite. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, this is uh, socialise the uh, profits and uh, privatize privatize the profits and socialise the losses. Yeah, and this is the the issue here because uh, when you look at how real politics works, particularly local government real politics. You'd hope that a Climate Adaptation Act, Act gets in there ahead of time and does some some attempt to try and uh, redress some of the inequities that climate change will throw up. But when you have nothing, when you have an ad hoc fly by the seat of the pants, make it up as you go along after the disaster, what you're going to have is who has the best access to councillors, to city planners, you know, so that when these mansions on top of the Takapuna uh, cliffs fall down, the owners are going to go to the council and say, well, how, how come you didn't tell me that these cliffs weren't going to were going to collapse? How, how come I got consent to, to put out put an extension on the back? You know, it's your fault. There is an argument that there's not enough good information out there yet and that there are consents still happening for places that there shouldn't. And another, another important element of all of this is, is, is the treatment of Māori land um, mm. it, and how you man manage that to be consistent with Teiteriti, and that's a whole separate piece. Like that needs to be managed very, very differently, uh, um, as the expert working paper clearly laid out. Mm -hmm. I think. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, another busy week in uh, in climate news, climate policy, climate disasters, and um, really appreciate your time um, coming on. It's time now for uh, Robert Patman to join Our us. Our usual visit to, to Kiev. <laughs> Kiev, yeah. <laughs> For a good old chat about uh, Ukraine and the Middle East and China. I just wonder if we could start um, today with a look. Peter, uh, you, you spent a lot of time looking at what's happening with the Middle East. It seems to have flown under the radar, so to speak, mm. uh, uh, whereas this is quite big news. Um, 
Peter. It's very interesting to see Saudi Arabia coming in from the cold, which is slightly ironic for a country that's extremely hot, of course. But um, you know, you've now got Britain having invited Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, or Mr. Bonesaw, to go to the to go to the UK in, in October. Saudi Arabia has appointed its first ambassador to the to the non-resident ambassador, of course, because they wouldn't want to live there. But to the Palestinian people, you've got this talk of a Saudi uh, or an American nuclear umbrella or military umbrella, at least for Saudi Arabia. And you had, of course, that that quite interesting conference in Riyadh recently about Ukraine, to which Russia was was not invited. You know, it's very interesting kind of pull, push and pull at the moment. Not to mention, of course, the Americans now asking the Iranians to stop sending drones to uh, Russia, which of course they deny, which is ridiculous. But you know, the, you've got these very parallel conversations going on, including, of course, the agreement that's been reached about American um, long-term prisoners in Iran being freed and returned for, I think, five billion dollars worth of um, Iranian cash. There's a lot sort of going on in that Iran-Saudi axis. Yeah, I mean, hi Bernard, hi Peter. It's been a very interesting week, actually. Um, in a sense, it's a high-risk strategy for Biden actually trying to pull off this initiative, uh, which involves, of course, Saudi Arabia extending diplomatic recognition to Israel. And I think to some extent, the Biden administration has been alarmed by growing Chinese influence in the Middle East. And it seems to me that this is not a particularly wise way of trying to limit Chinese involvement in the Middle East. The Mm. Middle East is a very volatile place. There's core issues which have only been half or addressed in a half-baked fashion, which is the Palestinian issue. And I, I expect that Saudis will negotiate hard with the United States. Bin Salman has good relations mm. with Putin. He negotiates with the Russians to keep the oil price up. And also he has excellent relations with the Chinese. And I, I think the United States at the moment is in danger of trying to exclude China and in the yeah. process making its own position even more questionable than it currently is in the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's, in a sense, some US political observers are falling back in a sort of Cold War paradigm, a sort of zero-sum approach to a very complex area of the Middle East. And I think there's real dangers for Mr. Biden here. And um, he may well be able to hold it all together to the election and present this as a triumph. There's one one thing that's very shrewd about it is, although members of Congress will have enormous reservations about a deal involving Saudi Arabia, the pro-Israel lobby in both the Democrats and the Republicans will almost certainly get it through Congress. And, um, you know, they, they, they know all about uh, the Khashoggi murder and the way the Saudi opera- regime operates. But I don't think, uh, you know, the from their point of view, the great bonus of getting another key Middle Eastern state to recognize Israel, uh, I think that would, uh, despite the reservations about Saudi Arabia, that will prevail. Yeah, although it's very interesting, Robert, I mean, you know, we discussed this, I think, but it's it very interesting what that might mean for Netanyahu and his coalition. If if any Saudi agreement has to include uh, a, a refreshed opening to to a two party state, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not sure how sincere Saudi Arabia is about getting political self determination for the Palestinians. They've had ample opportunity mm-hmm. to try to deliver that in the last forty years, and they haven't been too active. So, yes, they do rhetorically support the idea of a Palestinian state. One gets the feeling that it may be a bit of a cynical deal mm. at the Palestinians' expense. And to be quite frank, I'm not surprised that the British are collaborating closely with the Biden administration on this. The British, who have some responsibility in the Middle East, by the way, historically, mm-hmm. they want to have a very close trade relationship with the United States. That was always one of the hopes of Brexit. It hasn't materialized for various reasons. And they're hoping now that they've uh, got better relations with the EU, that they can take steps to consolidate the relationship with the United States. So, yeah, I can see Britain's motivation, but I do think this is a high-risk strategy for Mr. Biden. It's interesting, Robert, also just I hadn't really thought about this until now, but the the potential tension between Saudi Arabia and Jordan 
over mm. any agreement that involves uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount or the the Al-Aqsa Mosque is going to be quite interesting because, of course, the, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan considers itself to be the guardian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, mosque and was, uh, until the Al-Sads came along, yeah. the, the guardian of the two holiest shrines in um, in Saudi Arabia. So sure. you're going to have some very interesting kind of Islamic tension about about those, and we know how important all of all three of those sites are. How does um, Iran's position in this and the debate over its nuclear ambitions play in? Because we're starting to hear that you know that the, this might dislodge the positions in the debate over Iran and allow Iran to start uh, exporting oil again, which Biden would love to get those petrol pr- well, mm. uh, gas prices down again in an election year. Of course, China's a major customer of Iranian uh, energy products or fossil fuel products. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because my concern is that China will see this agreement, uh, this proposed deal uh, between Saudi Arabia and Israel as a blatant attempt to exclude China from the region, and it could retaliate. And one way it could retaliate, I'm not suggesting it will, but uh, China, you know, I think... the it will cite the precedent of AUKUS for transferring nuclear power submarines mm. to Australia. What's to stop China doing the same for Iran? Uh, after all, the United States could hardly complain on that front, could it? Yeah, and there's also the issue of um, transferring domestic nuclear, and apparently it's an elaborate nuclear system being demanded by mm. Bin Salman uh, from the United States. Again, how does that sit with the uh, NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty. So there's some very difficult issues there. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the Americans seem to be in the process of trying to uh, thaw their relations a little bit with the Iranians, and that's to be welcome. But um, I, I, I fear that the Iranian relationship to China will count much more for mm. decision makers in Tehran. And if the United States seems to be hell-bent on excluding China from the U- Middle East, which it won't It won't succeed in doing, but it, it could get the worst of both worlds. Robert, just moving, just segueing from the Iran and China to China itself, I mean, we've got a very, I think you're, it's a very interesting point as to whether the Biden isolation of China is, you know, at the same time he's trying to send, you know, Blinken and people to talk to, talk to China and reopen, mm. reopen the conversation. It's an extremely difficult um, uh, needle to thread that one. But you've also got, you know, I mean, we have to be careful what we wish for at the moment. I mean, Catherine accidentally mentioned that China was going into recession. There is the possibility of a recession, but it certainly mm. isn't there, isn't there yet. And I think we should be very careful um, what we kind of wish for with China. That that it's in our interest to have a China that's deeply engaged, economically successful. It is, and I, I absolutely agree, Peter. And we've seen the impact on dairy prices mm. with the economic downturn. In China, which has had a big impact here, so uh, it's we've got to try to, I think, as a country, try to ha- have a nuanced policy, which tries to basically keep China as constructive as possible, as possible. Tries to, but firmly indicate to China, um, as we have in the recent uh, New Zealand SIS report, mm. that we won't tolerate um, interference, but. At the same time, keep the doors open for some sort of dialogue, because I think there is a danger that if we keep pigeonholing China with Russia, I know China is unwisely supporting Russia Mm. in the Ukraine war, which I think is a misjudgment. But as we've spoken before, that perhaps the best response to that is to give as much support as possible to Ukraine to defeat Putin. But in the meantime, take a rather more constructive approach to China. Robert, David Mooring, one of our regular listeners, sort of asks a, a, a question along those lines, which is, um, is it possible that, that the weakness of the Chinese economy at the moment will push China back to a more sort of moderate and engaged process with the West? But my, my sense is actually us pushing, pushing them, the West pushing, pushing them away at the moment rather than them rejecting connections. I, I think that's a really good question. Um, it's very difficult to read China with great authority. I think many of us have uh, been surprised. Um, I think Miss, I think Xi Jinping has certainly got his enemies within China in the Chinese leadership, and I do get the sense that China has begun to realise 
that confronting uh, the West and particularly be tacitly supporting the Ukraine invasion could economically backfire. <clears throat> you know, we've spoken about this before, but China remains heavily dependent on big Western markets, uh, the EU, the US, and to quite a significant degree, but not Western market, the Japanese market. So in a sense, uh, I think that China thought it could possibly have its cake and eat it, which was, um, how should I put it, extend influence without any economic consequences. It may be learning that it's far more dependent on the West than it anticipated. And the Belt and Road Initiative is, yes, it's an expression of uh, China's global power, but it's no substitute Mm. for those markets that help China become the superpower that it is today. But it might be essential for Christopher Luxon's transport policy. But Robert, can we flick for one minute? We're, we're doing a bit of a tour of the world, but sure. um, it looks like the United States has authorized, I think, it's, uh, Denmark and uh, somebody else to send F-16s to to Ukraine. We've also had that really interesting yeah. development this week of Jens Stoltenberg's assistant at the or chief of staff at NATO being rather rather harshly told off by Zelensky in, in Ukraine, but also having to apologize for having suggested that the end result might have to be that Ukraine gives back territory. What's your current view on the on the Ukraine situation? Well, I, I think Zelensky implicitly could not survive. And that's why he gave Stoltenberg's official such a tongue lashing. He wanted to demonstrate to the Ukrainian people that the sacrifices they've made, which have been colossal, will not be in vain, and that he's going to hang tough. The Russians, he, he's made quite clear his terms for peace, so the Russians must return to their internationally recognized borders. The F-16 thing is interesting and slightly ambiguous because we know that some Ukrainians have been receiving training in the Netherlands and in Denmark I think particularly in the Netherlands, since about May. And now we have the official endorsement and approval, as well as the training, they can return with F-16s mm. to use. Now, the reason I say this is slightly ambiguous is because this has been going on for some time. And um, uh, there is suggestion in the media, at the moment, many media outlets, that in fact, this means that the now the US has officially given approval for the transfer of F-16s, that training can begin. Well, in mm. fact, we know that training's been going on. Yeah. Uh, and that means the projective use of the F-16s is currently in many media outlets about March next year, because that assumes they're just going to begin training. But mm. actually, if they've been training since May or even before, it may mean that those F-16s are going to be used a lot quicker than many people realize at the mm. moment, possibly late September or October. I can understand why the Americans may be strategically ambiguous about this, because, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to say in signal to the Russians, Mr. Putin in particular, oh, yeah, but those F-16s won't be used for another 16 months. Mm. And suddenly, two months later, they start getting used. It's interesting. It's the, the Netherlands, of course, is the other ones. Nether- Nether- the F-16s are coming from Netherlands and the uh, and Denmark. Yeah. Mm. Bernard. It, it is interesting to see how hard or how quickly the Russians might respond. What sort of response might the Russians make to um, these F-16s turning up and doing something quite explosive to to a Russian base? Well, Mr. Putin has warned it would be a fateful step by the West to transfer F-16s to Ukraine. But Mr. Putin, there's one thing consistent about Mr. Putin. There's always been an enormous gap between what he says and what he does. I actually think this is another red line that the West is going to cross, that they are going to get F-16s. It's probably too late from a Ukrainian point of view, or it's not as quickly as they would like, put it that way. Mm. But Robert, it's, it's interesting when you talk about, the, it's in, there was a very good story overnight, um, I, I think from Reuters, quite, quite widely reported, that the Russians are really going after where the storm shadow missiles might be based. Mm. Uh, and and where the various you know because the, the 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 Ukrainians are moving aircraft and yeah. that, that carry those storm shadows and the other uh, cruise missiles that they've been given particularly by the French that they're having to sort of shuffle the pack constantly and keep them constantly on the sure. move you know it's a, it's it's a very interesting military position and there's pressure growing to give Ukraine 
some pressure now, particularly in the United States, but there's some pressure in Germany to give Germany seriously considering giving the Ukrainians much longer reach missiles, that is longer range missiles, I should say, to counter the Russian advantage in this area. You've probably seen that the Russians have been targeting as well as uh, Storm Shadow missile sites or reported sites. They've been targeting some of the grain storage facilities mm. in Odessa. Mm. That, that's interesting in itself because we spoke about the discrepancy between Mr. Putin, he, he the language he uses and his intentions. He assured the 17 African leaders that attended a summit recently he wouldn't do anything to attack such storage facilities, but he's actually doing it. So, again, this is going to be very interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I, I actually think... Mr. Biden has used this very calibrated approach, always worrying that Mr. Putin might escalate, but gradually giving the Ukrainians more and more military capabilities. But I think from the Ukrainian point of view, it's it's, it's a little bit slow. They're taking terrible pummeling in the counteroffensive, but they are prevailing. They're gradually seizing more and more territory. At some point, I think the United States, Germany and Britain and some of the other leading contributors have to make up the mind that, you know, the gloves have to come off and they have to give Ukraine the ability to really take the fight to the Russians and stop this nonsense where the Russians can just hit any target they want. With very, I'm not saying that happens. The, Rus- the, the Ukrainians have the ability to intercept quite a few of these drones and missiles, but they're still, you know, there's, they're still taking a lot of punishment. Mm. Did you notice, um, Robert, that the um, general who was in charge of the Eastern Front during the invasion last year um, died of illness, uh, a long-standing yeah. illness this week? Yeah, it's uh, it, he wasn't near a window either, was he? No. Um, no, I mean, it's it would be interesting to do a headcount, Peter, of the t- senior military officials who've unfortunately mysteriously died. Although, as a friend of mine pointed out, he was 58, and since the average... A life expectation for a male in Russia is, I think, mid sixties. Yeah, maybe it's not such a big shock. So, it, yeah, I mean, it's maybe it was his lifestyle. Robert, thank you very much for coming on to thank the show. You. Lovely to see you. Really, really thank good. You. Um, and now it's time to welcome in uh, Josie Bagani from Wellington. Josie, lovely to see you. Look re- wrapped up, warm and toasty there. Yeah. Have you Have you been skiing? No, actually, I have. Funny you should say that, Peter. Oh, good. I, yeah, so I jumped in the car, went up to Ruapehu, which um, has got heaps of snow, which is great. Oh, and really? It's l- really good to see, you know, a lot of local people employed. I know I've got a lot of friends up there. I've had, I've had family up that way. So, yeah, I went up the and came back. And the ski fields were open. I had this impression that after they went yeah. bankrupt, they weren't open, but it's good that they're still operating. It is. I mean, it is uh, that whole community around Ohakuni and um, National Park, um, Ratahi, they're completely dependent on the three to four months that they can, you know, charge the bejesus mm. out of people coming to visit and ski and eat and so on. So, yeah. So, actually, I have been skiing, Peter. Thank you very much. Josie, you, you've written a really interesting piece this week in the, your column for The Post. And I was curious about what you thought of Labour's GST policy, which we finally saw on Sunday, which says that if it's a fresh or frozen piece of vegetables or fruit, it doesn't count for GST, Uh, leaving all sorts of fun boundary issues around, you know, is it dried? Is it it a packet with some um, processed mayonnaise in it? You know, all of these sort of fun things. What did you think? Well, I mean, look, if I could... If I could design the Labour Party's tax policy, this wouldn't be the front cover, right? This is not my favourite policy. But given that they've ruled out any restructure of what is a profoundly unbalanced tax system that we have in this country, you know, I mean, just statistically, about 45% of of our tax revenue comes from taxes on wages, income, and I think it's what 31% comes from GST. Now the OECD average is about 20%. So we have a very high sales tax. So in other words, if you happen to shop or earn a wage, you are paying most of the most of the uh, percentage of the of the tax revenue. So given that Labour have kind of ruled all of that out, 
what struck me about this was it, it felt like they couldn't even be bothered mm. to go out and argue for GST or fruit mm. and veg, their own policy, because they don't quite believe in it. And it's like, well, guys, if, if you're not going to do it, what the hell are you in politics for? So I thought, you know, that's why I was sort of thinking, you know, in the column that I'd give it a go arguing because, you know, the critics and the commentariat had been pasting it all week. Um, and, you know, the right of politics have revealed themselves yet again to go, um, uh, you know, any change to the tax system they don't support. And and suddenly the sort of clutching of pearls and the smelling salts that, you know, this this um, this tax cut on fruit and veg for GST would not be passed on to low-income people. The supermarkets would keep it. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, when did... Why are you now suddenly worried about um, the benefits of the tax system going to people who've got higher incomes? You know, where, where were you when, uh, for example, uh, there was the, the bid to the government, Labor government put out the policy to um, get rid of the exemption of GST on fund managers? So, you know, I, I thought, well, the, the principle here is that, you know, an exemption for fund managers on GST, fine. An exemption on fruit, oh, no, terrible terrible thing. So I just wanted to sort of, I guess, um, expose some of the political contradictions here, but also the, the the kind of lack of energy from Labour to go out and persuade people of something that they're worried is not popular. Mm. And actually, 66% of the population think this is a good idea because they quite like a bit of cash in the back pocket. Um, you know, whether or not it's, it, it's a workable policy, that's another issue. But it's popular, right? So then you have to go, well, maybe the commentariat Maybe the experts have got a problem <laughs> if, they're, if they're actually saying this is a terrible idea. And it Labor could have gone out and made the case for it, and they didn't. Yeah, because by not making the case for it, for almost apologising for it, it feels like they've lost their energy. I mean, what's the point of a politician who doesn't even try to convince you of anything? Well, that's so true, Bernard, and I've written a lot about this, actually, because, you know, I've been a, a, a critic from the left, I suppose, of of what I see as Jacinda Ardern's theory of politics, which I think is the theory of politics that that pervades the Labour caucus. And, and it was something she said, and we've talked about it before, in the last, in her valedictory week, um, she said, politics isn't just about what you do, it's about how you make people feel. Mm. So if that's your theory of politics, then making people feel good is the bottom line. And so you're not going to go out there and try and change people's minds of something that you think is not popular. In other words, you know, as you say, what are you there for? I mean, politics is the opposite of diplomacy. You're actually not there to make people feel good. You're there to go out, I've got an idea, I've got, I'm passionate about this, I want to persuade you. And if I can persuade enough people, I'll win. If not, I'll lose. Which is which is another reason that it was weird, wasn't it, Josie, that they, that they, uh, backpedaled so rapidly on Grant Robertson's rather intelligent proposal for a capital gains tax. Yes. Uh, well, and I mean, David Parker has, you know, been pushing for this for, um, you know, over a decade. Mm. And it's uh, ironic. I think it was the uh, 2011 election, I mean, the, where Labor had a dismal result. Um, the capital gains tax was more popular than the Labor Party then. Yeah. So in other words, was, <laughs> there was plenty of... I mean, people are up for a debate. And, I mean, this is the point I was trying to make in the column to it. it. It's like the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Elon Musk fight. There's all this kind of throwing insults at each other. But the cage fight never actually happens. Um, you know, and it feels like a really good down and dirty debate about how to fix our tax system isn't happening because, because you know, one side's too afraid to go there and the other side's just uh, is also defaulting to its position of, you know, we're the party of low tax, no tax. Mm. Um, and even Adam Smith, you know, back in the 1700s would have had a problem with that. You know, that the three, the, what was it, I think the four principles of a good tax system, it should be efficient, um, easy to understand. I'm not using 17th century language here. Um, um, uh, you know, and, and it should be um, a consistent approach and it should be equitable. And the thing that we haven't got in our system is equitable. I don't see why that has to be such a taboo topic to talk about. Mm. Yeah, I agree. But, but Josie, may I ask you just, but Bernard, Bernard's got leading this, but I just want to ask you a couple of questions because I, I was doing something about Trump this week, much as I didn't really want to. And I I've been really struck, particularly when I drive past them, seeing the National and uh, New Zealand First signs, one of which is get our country back on track, 
which I suspect is actually get our country back. And then we've got New Zealand first with let's take back our country. And I I find both of those sort of deeply worrying, rather un-New Zealand. I mean, Bob Hawke used to use the phrase, it's, it's un-Australian. But I think that's rather un-New un Zealand, uh, you know, this idea of hearkening back to an earlier period. This is really dangerous, it seems to me. And I, I wonder what you feel about that as, as, a, as a sensitive observer of the country. Yeah, that's interesting, Peter, because definitely the opposition slogans are all about nostalgia, somehow a sort of, uh, you know, let's get back to where we were before 2017 seems to be the uber, you know, meta mm, message. Mm. But the thing I noticed driving up to um, Rupehu was um, there are so many national billboards out there. They're not national, they're ACT, um, that I saw maybe two or three Labour billboards. Mm. Now, um, to be fair, it's Rangitiki, which is a safe national seat, but still, again, there's a feeling of the fight not being there for Labour. But you're right. I mean, national, um, they, they've got an, a, they've got a lot of money. They've got a big ground game. They're, they're just absolutely swamped. The country. Yeah. But but this nostalgia thing, Jofie, I mean, mm. for, for we, we know that this nostalgia, this, uh, what I might call my grumpy Pākehā nostalgia, not my own, of course, but the um, this idea that New Zealand was somehow better when we were all Kiwis. You know, there's, I, I just feel that there is a deeply underlying racial element to this, which is potentially really toxic for the country. I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's. I think the the um, trigger that they're trying to ignite here is more about everything's you know gone to hell in a handbasket in the last six years, and we, you know we need to focus on the basics. You know, which is what Labor was trying to do too. Mm. The back basics you know it's back to mm. basics it's get our John Major back. did that as well of course yeah worked brilliantly for him right not, yeah but I don't I don't think I, I'm not sure that I agree that it's it's a kind of back to white New Zealand pitch I, I think that that ship sailed a long time ago I think there is definitely um, a, a message coming from ACT that's you know about get get away from race-based politics that's true and you've got Te Pāti Māori at the other end going, you know, let's make this about, you know, race. And there's a there's a, a play on at Circa, which I haven't seen, which is a, I forget what it's called. It's, it, it's um, you know, basically a political satire. And apparently there's a, there's a bunch of um, Te Pāti Māori characters who keep going, they want to de-parkify um, mm. New Zealand, you know. So they're, they're making a joke of it. And it's, and it's really healthy, actually, because you realise we haven't actually been able to laugh at some of this for a while. I mean, laughing at this and realising that, you know, we're not a racist state. We're not, a, we're not trying to go back to, uh, you know, the white New Zealand message. Have you heard what David Seymour said about Guy Fawkes? Well, yeah, but I think... I think it's provocative. Um, it's provocative, yeah, and and it's certainly you know it's like uh, I was saying about um, Winston Peters the other day. You know he's an, he's kind of being anti-vax adjacent without stepping over mm, the edge. Mm, and it's exactly. certainly an element of act being you know adjacent to some pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, stuff. and and you know what they what that that famous saying, of course, also Josie, that nostalgia isn't what it used to be. Yes, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, actually, I wrote something about nostalgia the other day. It's it's a tricky, it's a it's a very dangerous path to go down. But I, but it personally, let alone politically, you know, there's no going back. Um, but I I I don't agree that I think some of the stuff that ACT are raising. The reason they're doing so well, Peter, is one of the reasons is that people are going. Um, I, I want to discuss, you know, I want to talk about this and I'm uncomfortable about some of this. And that that you have to be able to have a discussion about co-governance, for example, mm. or about, um, uh, you know, devolution of resources, whatever. You have to be able to talk about that without being called a racist. So I think mm. they've... They're they're being they're they're adjacent to some uncomfortable stuff, but that's the that's the road they're trying to go down. I, so I, and I think that you you can't say that that's that's illegitimate or no, or that absolutely not. No, no, that's fair the, enough. And I I think you're right in that by choosing to highlight some things which aren't being discussed, they're tapping into this concern that in this drive for low target politics we shy away from the things that create heat. Mm. It's a classic sort of uh, avoiding conflict um, approach. Kiwis are quite good at avoiding conflict, actually, in personal situations or work situations. Uh, we're sort of notorious for the whole passive-aggressive thing. 
That's so true, Bernard. And I was just, I, I've written about this too, because I think, yeah, we've just had all these valedictory speeches all week with the backbench, various backbench MPs and some ministers like Stu Nash and David Clark, you know, leaving. And they both gave great speeches. But I mean, the bulk of people giving their valedictory speech this week, I wouldn't know who they were. And, mm. and I'm a political junkie and I can't name them. And you think you compare that to Britain, where you've mm. got this culture, even amongst the party of, of people tearing each other apart. Mm. Theresa May tearing Boris Johnson apart over um, Partygate, you know, and you think, God, that's amazing. And Australia is the same. So we, you're right. We don't have a culture within parties. We're not good at having a debate between parties where people, politicians take risks. And I think that's part of the reason why every 10-year-old girl in New Zealand at the moment wants to play football and doesn't want to grow up and be a yeah. politician. That is that is quite a thing. Um, it's really taken hold in New Zealand, that, that thing. The other thing I wanted to talk about on billboards is, A, luckily we haven't gone back to the sort of iwi-kiwi nastiness of 2005, which is yeah, that was horrible. a similar period in our political cycle at the end of a second term of a Labour government with um, a former business leader as, as the head of the National Party who went on to lose, by the way. Uh, and uh, But what struck me about those billboards is you're right. Uh, I, I actually drove all the way from Wellington to Auckland on Sunday and Monday, and I was shocked at the sheer volume of yeah. blue boards, act boards. So much money has gone in there. And these are along the, the state highway. So they're obviously aimed at passing people, people who are not necessarily in the electorate. And mm. so... Um, Labor is being outspent and the energy in their um, parties is just, um, Labor is low energy. And I think partly because yeah. a lot of their supporters have just been squashed again by mm. a party leader saying, you can't talk about this thing that you believe in. It's bad for us. Yeah, and that's right. And I think, um, Bernard, there are, there are like, you know, we've looked at the polls, we've discussed the polls before, clearly there's a there's a decline in the left block and, a, and an ascendancy of the right block. But polls are only one way of measuring what's happening, right? And, and so I heard someone say the other day, well, you know, who knows what people tell the polls? I mean, we tell the doctor we only have two or three drinks a week. Um, but you know, the, the polls are, of course, more legitimate than, you know, us discussing our, um, what we're hearing from our mates or who we're talking to at work. Um, so, of course, they're legitimate. But the other things to look at is just what you say. So the money that's being spent, who's raising more money? And clearly National Act got a lot of money. The size of audiences turning up to meetings. Um, and, and the other one is the sort of passion and the momentum and the, and the sort of sense of, of movement happening. Where is it? And it's all on the sort of right, mm. centre-right. Um, as are the meetings. Even you know, one of the things I noticed about Winston Peters um, that he's been doing a yeah, and Shane Jones as well, a big ground game going on. They're filling halls in in small communities all over the place, and that's now bubbling up in the polls. But it's taken a while. So um, yeah, there are many ways to look at where the mood is going in the country. And we'll um, have a few more weeks to talk about the mood as we get closer. It's getting closer. It's not that far away now, the election. But, Peter, um, to take us out with a skateboarding dog, what have you got for us? Well, my, my one this week is, you know, because I think we were all fairly ashamed when Jacinda Ardern had to go on Justin Trudeau's plane because her 757 um, had broken down. And I think that's happened to se several times with the RNZAF um, aircraft. And, of course, the German uh, foreign minister had to cancel a trip that was supposed to include Australia and New Zealand because her 23-year-old Airbus A340, which is a lovely plane, had a rather serious problems with its uh, wing flaps being stuck in the takeoff attitude and, uh, and having twice, actually, in fact, uh, after they tried to fix it in Abu Dhabi. There's something about that that sounds really dirty, Peter. I can't put my what? finger on my it. My flaps? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I, yeah, I'm always in the takeoff mode. But, you know, they had to dump fuel and it was probably a, quite a risky, quite a risky landing with your flaps still up, as it were. But so, you know, we're not we're not alone. And, you know, I'm, I guarantee that Christopher Luxon will be buying a Gulfstream, you know, in the in the first six months of his government. Yeah, and it was good to see that the, the latest Poseidon, which essentially is a seven three seven with a bunch of kit yeah. in it, has arrived. That 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 should be used on occasion to fly people around. It's a it's a good looking machine. Yeah, but it's it's it's, it's probably yeah. I don't think it's got seats in it anymore, Bernard. It's probably got, you know, it's got a bloody great radio on it as well, hasn't it? 
Yeah. Excellent. Hey, great to see you all. Thank you very much, and we'll see you all again uh, next week. Thanks, Thank Stephen. you, and get get out, Thanks, get, get, get home safely tonight. Bernard, yeah, please. yeah. Kakite. See you, Josie. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye. See you guys. Bye.